Paul writing says, Therefore, I, the prisoner in the Lord, urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Every time you take a step, 200 muscles flex and stretch and operate together in harmonious unity. Uh, It's a good thing, too, that it works smoothly and harmoniously because most of us take thousands upon thousands of steps every day. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks to us about how to walk worthy. It's sort of been the culmination of all of these chapters about what it means to be a Christian and what God has won for us and designed for us and called us into. And he says, okay, and now that you know this, it's time to walk worthy of that calling. And he's talking in this section all about how to walk worthy. In our last study, we looked at verse 1. Walking worthy is our operating principle in the Christian life. That's our goal. That's our heading. Tonight, Paul describes sort of the muscles that facilitate that walk and reminds us that the exercise of our Christian faith happens in tandem with other Christians whose lives are knit close with ours. And this draws on some images that Paul has given us earlier in the book, earlier in the letter, talking about how we are brought together in a family, knit together uh, like a building with living stones put close together. So the smooth operation of all of those parts, meaning all of those Christians, you included, it's very important. It's a very significant thing, and Paul wants us to think a lot about it. Uh, and any of you who have a trick knee know why it's important, right? Uh, some of you have that, that, that problem ankle, that trick knee, that thing where if you just move your shoulder the wrong way, it lets you know in no uncertain terms that something is not going smoothly, something is not right. And oftentimes, people with those sorts of conditions spend uh, tons of time in in physical therapy and in surgery and then in more physical therapy and strengthening other areas in order to help deal with that weak area. And so Paul's likening our Christian experience with other Christians in the church to being like a body. And, and he's going to talk about how the individual parts, we work together. And you know what? Sometimes some of those parts are a little bit out of joint. Some of those muscles are strained. Paul's going to talk all about that, how we operate smoothly, how we do our part uh, to, to flex the way we're supposed to. In verses two through six, if we step back and kind of just look at what Paul's saying, we get the impression that the trail of faith we're walking on, it's not always going to be easy. In fact, we find that we're going to have to balance and bear weight and compensate for those we're walking alongside, and they may have to do that for us. We are one body, part of one plan in the Lord's will, so unity is not just some pleasant ideal, not just some fond theory someone might have. It is an absolute essential. So let's look at some of the muscles of walking worthy, starting in verse 2. Paul says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Uh, Those of you who are athletes or were athletes, you know that form matters, whether it's swinging a bat, shooting a free throw, diving from the block, 
A good coach is going to talk you through and direct you through the mechanics of the motion, right? And the importance of, of forming your motion in a certain way so that uh, the athleticism works the way it's supposed to. Paul talks about mechanics in these verses. He says, hey, you're all called to walk worthy, and here's how. He talks about the mechanics. If you want to walk worthy, it's going to look like this. His emphasis in our text is on the unity of the body, and he says the best way for us to maintain unity overall is for each one of us as Christians to bear with one another. What does that mean? We kind of have a, a general understanding, bear with one another. You know, I think, well, it means, uh, you know, I guess be friendly to people or it means kind of help people out from time to time. But what does Paul mean when he says bear with one another? Uh, well, linguists tell us the phrase actually means this, put up with each other. I think that's uh, a little bit funny and I think it's great. That, you know what, because uh, Christianity is not a... Uh, religion that doesn't meet us where we're at. It's not a religion at all. It's a relationship with God who then empowers our relationships with others. And, and it's very realistic the way that Paul is writing. He says, hey, as you are walking worthy with the Lord, a big aspect of that is going to be you need to put up with each other and, and others need to put up with you. Uh, another way this is translated, your version may have, make allowance for each other's faults. The church is a magnificent creation. In it, God brings together people from all backgrounds, all social status, all ethnicities, uh, all sorts of shapes and sizes and everything into one harmonious family of grace and power and purpose headed towards one kingdom where we will rule and reign with Christ forever and ever. But meanwhile, the church at large and churches individually are comprised of human beings, you and me, and we are imperfect. Even Paul says in a different letter, he says, hey, I'm, I'm explaining to you what it means to be a Christian and how to walk with the Lord. I'm not talking as if I have attained. He says, I haven't attained. I, I'm, I'm also working through this process as the Lord sanctifies me and leads me and corrects me and draws me on. So we're imperfect and we comprise the church. And so that means that churches individually and the church at large, there's going to be interpersonal friction from time to time, conflicts even, clashes, irritations, annoyances, disappointments. Uh, you know, the, the, the basic premise that Paul is giving us here is that you are going to annoy someone or offend them at some point, and they are going to annoy you and offend you at some point, because that's part of the human condition, and all of us are imperfect. Walking worthy means that along the way, we find ways to put up with one another. Well, how do I do that? Well, Paul gives us a few medications for the issue. He says, first, we do it with all humility. Humility is a big, big point in the Bible, both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Humility in the Bible doesn't mean disliking yourself. Uh, it doesn't mean even constantly trashing yourself. Maybe you know someone who is always speaking negatively about themselves, always putting themselves down. That's not biblical humility. In fact, that's often a sort of false or synthetic humility or just kind of a mechanism to get attention off of a person. That's not biblical humility. Paul defined biblical humility over in Romans 12 verse 3. Here's what he said. He said, don't think of yourself more highly than you should. That's a great concept of biblical humility, having a 
proper and appropriate mindset of who I am and what my place is in God's plan and in what my calling is and not to think too highly of myself and not to inflate uh, my ego or anything like that. That's biblical humility. And we remember from last time that walking worthy, worthy is a term that means balanced, right? Being balanced as we walk, our, a balance between what we believe and what we do and a balance you know, of all these truths that Paul has been delivering for chapter after chapter. And so we see it here infiltrating our mind, having a balanced assessment of ourselves, humility. Now, humility is not a natural way of thinking. In fact, it was considered a vice to be avoided in Greek and Roman culture. It was something that was only slaves should have, right? They said only slaves should be humble. If you're humble, that's a problem. In fact, one of the commentators tells a story of uh, one of the Roman emperors, whose name I don't know, probably because he got murdered really quick, but he was accused of being humble, the same word that Paul tells us to be. They say, this guy's humble. The praetorian guard said, we don't really like that. And he ends up murdered, right? So humility was not a good thing in the, in the Roman and Greek culture. That's for slaves. But then we just pause and remind ourselves, aren't we slaves to the Lord, bond servants to Jesus Christ? Yes, we are. Aren't we to follow in the steps of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who emptied himself and took the form of a servant, a washer of feet? This calling into Christianity is a calling out of the world's culture, out of the world's values, out of the world's assessments, and then turning to God and saying, so Lord, I want your values, I want your assessment of how things really are, I want your culture to pervade my mindset, my attitudes, my activities, my desires. And this is just a great little frame by frame here that you can look at where the the world turns its nose up and gags on humility. And the Lord says, actually, humility is a very key thing, not just for your relationship with other people, but just your walk with me altogether. Next, gentleness. The term means meekness, considerateness, strength under control. In the Bible, this word, gentleness, is often used in the context of dealing with conflict. So it's not just about you know, uh, not, you know, being too rough with people. Often in the Bible, when it talks to Christians about how to deal with conflict, interpersonal conflict, it will bring in this term gentleness, meekness, this considerateness and strength under control. In the church, if you're a Christian, conflict is never about you winning or you being right or you uh, beating the other person. It's about How can I reconcile with this brother or sister so that we are reconciled back together? If we're talking about conflict within the church, and Paul, the context here, is talking about how we operate with other Christians as one body. Christians are not supposed to use the strength that God gives us to tear down. We're to use our strength the way Jesus did. He was the gentlest of all, the meekest of all, and also the strongest of all. And his strength was used to gather, to heal, to direct back to the Father, back to the truth. He didn't compromise, or he didn't overlook things, or he didn't not care about right and wrong. He did more than anyone. But he used his strength to reveal truth and to reconcile and to this end goal of redeeming and restoring. That's what his desire was. Next, Paul brings up patience. Patience is a term that means long-tempered as opposed to being short-tempered. 
It's the ability to endure over time. And again, the context means Paul says, hey, we need to bear with one another. We need to put up with one another. We need to make allowance for each other's faults by patiently enduring our brothers and sisters' weakness uh, and the faults of those around you in God's body. Not driving people away, not beating them down, not blocking them out, but staying close even when we're irritated or annoyed or disappointed with them in some way. Patience, like gentleness, we're told in Galatians, is a fruit of the Spirit, which means that I don't have to do these things in order to be a good Christian, right? So it's easy for us to read what Paul is saying and saying, okay, well, then I need to figure out how to, you know, build uh, patience and gentleness and, and all these things, and I need to force myself to do it, and then once I do it, I'll be a good, strong Christian. But that is the, the reverse of what Paul has been talking about for the whole letter. He's talking about who God has made you to be. You are a new creation if you're a Christian. He says, this is what's real about Christianity. This is what's true about you. These are the characteristics of the salvation that God has given you. And so it's not that we do these things in order to become worthy. This supernatural equipment is already and continually provided for me and for you. And these things that God has provided can infuse my actions and activities and attitudes as I choose to put them on and operate in the spirit rather than in my natural human mindset. Now, when it comes to humility, some will say it's a fruit of the spirit, but it's interesting in, in Colossians when Paul's, it's a very parallel passage where a lot of the language is the same. He's, he's bringing this same kind of message that he is to Ephesians. And he talks about humility and he says, you need to put on humility. You need to sort of look into the, 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 the drawers of your heart and say, okay, today I can put on irritation, I can put on resentment, I can put on disappointment, or the Lord says, I can put on humility and dress myself with that equipment which God has provided for me, has given for me and installed into my heart, and we have this choice to put it on. So Paul is saying, you need to put up with one another, but God's intent is never that we do it begrudgingly or with resentment in our hearts or with a grind in our teeth. That's not the deal. Paul says they're to bear with one another in love, in agape. It's a supernatural love. Agape is special because it is always a a love of choice. Some of you, well, we love certain things just out of urge sometimes, right? Some of you in here right now love black licorice. Man alive. God bless you, but something's wrong, right? And I'm, I'm going to go on record as saying, you didn't wake up probably one day and say, I'm going to decide to like black licorice. You know why I know that? Because every time I've given somebody black licorice, they either immediately recoil or they're like, oh yeah, this is delicious. We need to study those people and find out what's going on with them, right? But we see in that sense, you know, there are things that we love because, because we love them, Right? They're hardwired in or they are, are, they're a love of urge of some kind. But agape is a love of choice. Agape love is choosing to love how God loves and what God loves because he's given us his love. Now, 
verse 3 says this, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. So all of this is based out of love, not gritting our teeth, not out of resentment or begrudgingly or just a pure obligation, I should do this. But Paul is saying, hey, listen, this is walking worthy that we're operating all of these things that, that God has given us, that Jesus Christ has won for us, that we've been designed with now that we're his people, brought into his family, brought into his building, brought into his church. And he says, in love, we're going to do this. And he says, and in love, we're going to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Scholars tell us that the English translation loses the urgency of Paul's words here. One commentator writes this, that Paul was saying, yours is the initiative. Do it now. Mean it. You are to do it. I mean it. Such are the overtones of verse 3, according to this commentator. So Paul implores us to keep the unity of the Spirit. Okay, so what does that mean? What is this unity he's talking about? You know, in all the New Testament, this Greek word is only used in this verse and once again in verse 13. So there's not a ton of usages of this word that Paul is saying, hey, make sure you do this. And sometimes we have these terms in, that we can go all over the New Testament and kind of draw out this really comprehensive picture, but this is a very rare term he's using. The word itself is defined as oneness. If you get a, a dictionary, a Bible dictionary, go to Strong's Concordance, it's going to tell you the term means oneness. That's still pretty vague, especially for something that Paul is saying is so important. So unity that Paul's talking about does not mean that we all do the same things as Christians. I think sometimes with good intentions, Christians act like spiritual unity means every church does the same thing, every Christian reads the same book, everybody gathers in the same spot to present some united front and take a stand on some issue. Those things aren't necessarily bad, but that's not what Paul means. Paul didn't follow up verse 3 with, and by the way, here's what the church in Jerusalem is doing, and so you guys need to do that too right? Um, Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, it's a unity, not uniformity. Think of the analogy that Paul's been using of a body, right? It says that you're a body, we're a building, each part, you know, built in a certain location on the cornerstone, but he's like, you're a body, a member. And think of your body right now, your eyes are doing one thing, your hands are doing something different, your ears are doing something different, your feet are doing something different still, they're all needful things. They're all part of the whole, but different things happening for different reasons. Paul defines unity in this verse as a gracious, loving attachment to one another through what he calls the bond of peace. Now, in chapters one through three, he talked about peace, spiritual peace, the peace of God. He talked at length about how God has reconciled us to himself and all of us to one another. Remember that? Jews and Gentiles. He says he brings them all together. Everybody welcome in. And now we're called to walk in that reconciliation, to stay in that unified arrangement, attached to the gospel, attached to the Lord, attached to the family of believers the way God has designed us to be. Uh, you know, that, that's what Paul is talking about here. Paul says, keep that unity. And that word is important because it means it's not something that we build for ourselves, make for ourselves, find for ourselves. It means something has been delivered to you. Keep it. It's not something we attain. It's something we maintain. God has already done it. God has already given it. And so we as Christians don't build a monument of unity through some cooperative activity. 
We simply continue in the arrangement God has given us. And so in a practical way, the Lord has placed you in a certain time, in a certain place. He has a certain, if you're a Christian, he has a certain group of Christians that he wants to knit your life next to. And, and he says, okay, I've, I've unified you together from all these different backgrounds and ethnicities. And I bring them all together, everybody together in this one great plan. And now walk in that unity, walk in that plan, walk in that work that I started and am bearing fruit through your life. Don't remove yourself out of it. Don't kick the person next to you out of it. Paul said, make every effort. This is important for spiritual health that we realize, okay, this unity Paul's talking about. It's an important thing, and I don't want to take it for granted, and I know that I am going to imperfectly step and keep in pace with the Lord, and so I need to make an effort to remain in this position that God has placed me, to remain connected to the gospel, connected to him, connected to believers through this bond of peace. Uh, this week, a friend of mine from Northern California works at a church. He was having trouble with the, like the video distribution in their new church building. And so we were sending each other text messages back and forth um, one of these days this week, just over and over and over again. We were just kind of trying to troubleshoot together. Could it be this? Could it be that? Let's try this. Let's try that. Um, and and nothing was really working, but we were just trying to make every effort. And we kind of went through all the things and then nothing was working. I said, well, let's go back and hit that thing again. Yeah, it's still not working. And we just were trying to, right, make every effort because it was important to us to try to get his system functioning again. And finally, he figured it out, right? Now, I wasn't physically there to help. I played a very minimal and different part from afar, But then later, as I was studying this, I was like, yeah, that's a great example of making every effort, not just kind of looking at a problem and saying, well, what are you going to do? There's nothing I can do about this disunity between me and my brother here in the church. And so, you know, I mean, oh, yeah, it's a bummer. It would be nice if that worked. Paul says, man, let's make every effort to maintain the unity that the Lord has given us. Christian unity, Paul says, starts with my mindset. I should care about staying bound to other believers. Sometimes that requires effort, a lot of effort. But if I understand the value, if I allow God's perspective to become my perspective, then it's no longer a chore, but a joyful endeavor. There are some chores that you do that you like to do, and there's other chores you do that you don't like to do. I'll use myself as an example. I hate yard work so much. I just hate it so much. I know, like, I have friends that are like, I love to mow my lawn. I'm like, you probably eat black licorice too. That's great. (laughs) So I just hate it. But you know what I love to do? I love to change the strings on my guitar. I'll change the strings on anybody's guitar in here, right? I just love to do it Uh, because it's not a chore for me. Even when the little, if you've ever changed strings on a guitar and you know that like the little end of the string can go right into your finger and like, man, it hurts so bad. I'm like, I love it. This is so great. (laughs) And so it's a joyful endeavor, right? Because I see the value and it's something that I care about. I have a mindset where I like, I love doing this. I want to maintain my guitar. I want to maintain this instrument. I don't care about my grass. Who cares about that, right? And so, uh, so unity Paul says it doesn't start with other people doing what they should do. It starts with my mindset. Now, I wish that all of us did what we're supposed to do at all times, but we're not going to do that because we're imperfect human beings. You're not going to do everything you're supposed to do at all times. Paul said, I don't do everything I'm supposed to do at all times. 
So unity doesn't start with that person needs to. It starts with what's my mindset? What am I value? What's my perspective? Of course, keeping this unity is not always possible. Paul said in Romans 12, he said, as far as depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And so sometimes there is going to be division. Sometimes there aren't going to be clean reconciliations between people because you can only do what depends on you, right? But the point in Ephesians here is that unity in the body is something that I should value and invest energy into. Verse 4 says, there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling. In verses 2 and 3, Paul showed us the muscles of walking worthy. In verses 4 through 6, he's kind of giving us the frame that it's all built upon. You might say it's the skeletal structure that God has provided so that we can walk. Uh, It gives seven elements that unity is based on. It's not based on what we do, but it's rooted in understanding who God is and what he has created us to be. That there is a head, Jesus Christ, and a heavenly design that has been established by God, and then we get to walk in obedience according to that plan as the head directs us, right? Your head decides where your legs step and walk. And when it doesn't, something's wrong, and we understand that, and we think, oh, we need to get that corrected. Many scholars believe that verses four through six here are part of a first century creed or a hymn that the churches may have recited. Uh, If so, this wouldn't have been new material for them. It would have been something that they recognize. But it's good to remind ourselves again and again and again of what is biblically true. This is why it's a good habit to continually read the Bible, the word of God. You know, just to be continually ingesting what God has said. Even those sections of the Bible that you know back and forward, that you know by heart, that you could recite. We just need to remind ourselves again and again of the truth that God has revealed and and to just remind ourselves, okay, this is who God is. This is who I am. This is the plan. This is how I cooperate with him. Uh, These are good things. As we stay attached to the head, we will stay attached to others. As we are vivified by the Spirit, we are able to exercise our faith and be fruitful toward others. There is one body. Paul means that there is one universal church. But the New Testament is clear that each local gathering of Christians like us here tonight is a legitimate and meaningful representation of the whole. So we are the church, and we are also part of the church universal from Pentecost on forward. This is a body, and I am a member. I am a part. The Bible reveals that God has scattered me into a specific time and place on purpose. He has gifted you and me in certain ways and prepared good works for us to discover and walk in. So my calling then is to find my part, find my place, and operate appropriately in the power of the Spirit. But it's important that we remember there are lots of parts that do lots of things. You know, scientists aren't sure why humans swing their arms when they walk. I thought it would be a very basic, it's for balance. But I looked it up and yeah, they're not exactly sure because you don't have to swing your arms when you walk. You just look weird. You look like a black licorice eater. And so you don't have to swing your arms with your, when you walk, but we do. And, and I suppose if the legs could talk, 
on a grumpy day on a long hike, they might say, you know, since you're just swinging around up there, how about you arms take some of the weight for a while? I've seen those gorillas, they're walking mostly on their forearms and their back legs aren't doing much. How about you do that, right? Uh, but that's not the job. Arms have other parts to play. Now, some research shows that arm swinging somehow reduces the amount of energy the legs have to use in order to walk. When they stop people's arms from swinging, it is a greater metabolic load on the legs. How does that work? I don't know. And they don't know. That's what they said. We don't know why this is happening, but it is happening. So the arms swinging are helping the legs do less work for the same amount of travel. And you wouldn't think that by looking at it, but some very complex things are going on, each part impacting the overall enterprise. So in the church, we're all headed toward one hope, right? One destination. And thanks to God's enabling and his power, we're going to get there. Along the way, it's easy for us to become frustrated at others around us or assume they're not pulling their weight or to think that real unity just means that they do what we're excited about doing. But God has many parts to his body and is accomplishing profoundly complex things through his people all over the earth by his spirit. And as the Bible tells us, the eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. Or again, the head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. Unity means we understand this diversity and the bigger picture and say, okay, I'm doing what God has asked me to do, what God has, has, has designed for me. You do what God has asked you to do. And as we do that, as we maintain that unity with the spirit and with the head and with one another, then we're going to stay connected to the love of God and the power of the spirit and make progress smoothly together. Verse five says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. It's sad that there's so much division on these basic elements of Christianity. Man, if you want to get into a fight with a Christian, just start talking about one of these things, right? Paul says there's one Lord. If you open up social media today, you're going to see people all over the political spectrum claiming Jesus as theirs, as their emblem, right? One person is going to have on a shirt that says Jesus was a refugee. The next person is going to have a shirt that says proud Christian nationalist. All kinds of people saying, We're, we claim Jesus. He represents us. Who's right? Well, God forbid that we make the Messiah in our own image. Jesus Christ is not made in your image. There is one Lord who he is, what he has said, what he's done, what he's going to do has been revealed to us on the pages of scripture. We fall in line with him. He doesn't get in line behind us and our agendas and the things we want to do. If we want to be thriving Christians who walk worthy, we need to base our lives on the biblical Jesus. Not any kind of cultural Jesus. Not a Jesus that reinforces what I already think or my desires or my goals. Or not to wield Jesus as if he's some talisman. You know, the Israelites would do this sometimes with the Ark of the Covenant. They forgot uh, the, the covenant part. <laughs> they forgot the part that this is about our obedience and our worship of the God of heaven and earth. And they said, well, we have the Ark of the Covenant. We're going to bring it out and we're going to beat everybody. Oh, what's this? We got wiped out. The Philistines have the Ark now. They were wielding it like a talisman. And we need to be careful about not treating Jesus as if he's a talisman. He's a person. He is the Lord. There's only one Lord. That's a controversial statement. It was historically, it is still today. It's controversial to our human hearts, to our human culture. There was an inscription found around the time that this book was written 
Uh, and, and this is what the inscription said, Nero, Lord of the universe. Wow. But it's not true. Jesus is king and no one else. Jesus is Lord and there is no other. Not Nero, not you. Jesus is Lord. And we just need to recite that to ourselves. There's one faith. Jude talks about contending for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. So there are things that are essential that we believe. There are tenets of Christianity that are non-negotiable. Unity doesn't mean compromising what we believe just to keep relational peace with people around us. Far from it. There are essentials that you have to hold to no matter what. Paul was very concerned about false teachings and doctrinal errors coming into the churches that he had founded and the churches that he wrote to. No, salvation wasn't faith plus circumcision, he told the Galatians. No, it's not faith plus the law of Moses, he told the Jerusalem council. So Paul would not back down on essentials and neither should we. So this goal of unity, bearing with one another, of course, does not include saying, and so just kind of throw up your hands and say, all truth is truth. That, that's not it at all. What is the faith? Well, it's not just what we feel is good or things that are emotionally pleasing to us. The faith is what has been revealed and taught in the word of God through the prophets and the apostles. That's why we study the Bible. What's the faith? Who is God? What has he said? What has he done? What's the plan? It's told to us. It's not based off of what I want to happen. It's not based off of my emotion. It's not based off of my own human ideas or my own, you know, philosophizing of what I think should be. It's what has been revealed. That's why we read the Bible and study it. There's one baptism. Scholars divide over whether Paul is referring to being baptized in the Holy Spirit at salvation or actual water baptism. It doesn't really matter because water baptism is simply the outward sign of the inward reality. It's a very important part of our walk with the Lord. Uh, If you're a Christian and you haven't been water baptized, you need to be water baptized. Jesus commanded it. It's the public testimony of the inward work of salvation in your heart. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. These are all things that have been revealed and we can find in the scriptures. And so we can unify around God's word, around studying it and writing it on our hearts and applying it to our lives. And we can enjoy greater unity with one another when we're all on the same page biblically, right? When we say, hey, here's what's revealed. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, all these things. Let's let's learn them and apply them because Paul's all about, you know what you need most of all? To grow in your knowledge, grow in your understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done. Verse six, he says, one God and father of all who is above all and through all and in all, 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 all. Paul drives home God's power and transcendence. This is the deal. This is how God has designed his church. And it is an unstoppable work that will come to fruition. God is in charge. He is providentially accomplishing his will. He intends to include every single one of his people in his master plan for us. So, knowing this, my imperative is to walk worthy in this plan God has called me into. And a big part of walking worthy, according to this text, is to maintain the unity God has given in the church. What we find in these verses is that unity is not about what others do. It is primarily about me. It's about my treatment of the believers around me. I can't just write people off or reject them because they annoy me or aren't as excited about some particular ministry or service as I am. 
unity to Paul is not about all of us building some monument together. It's about my attitude toward brothers and sisters near and far. Do I love them? Do I value them? Do I put on humility and gentleness and patience, knowing that God is working out his plan through the whole body and finding ways to bear with one another so that they are strengthened and thereby I am strengthened too? When I have the urge to think, okay, well, that person over there needs to step up, the better thought is I just need to be in step with the Lord. And I help maintain unity as I understand what God is doing and keep an appropriate perspective on my own part to play and remember that God loves and values the Christian next to me just as much as he loves and values me. Having this perspective is not going to lead us to compromise or weakness. It's not going to eventuate in us looking the other way when a Christian is out of joint. The opposite is true. It causes us to be strengthened by grace, which will make us stronger for the walk, more able to strengthen the weak knees around us, to be built up and equipped for the trail ahead. Having this mentality of gracious, loving unity is going to help us as we move as we're knitted and weaved together like muscles in a particular place, in a particular time, for particular reasons, in God's perfect will.